Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. Uh, I'm David Greiner. I'm the international editor with Adweek. Uh, back with me, as always, is Shannon Miller, our creative and inclusion editor. Shannon, always great to have you back. Thank you. It's been a while since we've recorded together, actually. I know. I realized as I said that, I was like, have you back? I'm like, wait, we're co-hosts. I, but it, it has been a minute since we were both uh, on the show together. So it's great to, great to chat. And uh, speaking of somewhat frequent guests, uh, we've got Stephen Leptak, our uh, Europe Bureau Chief. Stephen, uh, I think uh, folks, if you listen to last week's podcast, may have heard his conversation with Trevor Beatty about going into space. Uh, but now we've got a very different topic to talk about. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Yeah, you guys can get rid of me. <laughs> it's like a bad penny or whatever you call it in the UK. Um, so uh, this week we're going to be talking about two uh, unrelated but fascinating things. Uh, one is a lawsuit in the UK that has really sent uh, a lot of, uh, you know, I know it's it's cliche to say sent shockwaves through the industry, but it has sparked a, a ton of conversations and outrage within the industry. Uh, this is the discrimination case filed against uh, the former agency known as JWT, now part of Wonderman Thompson. Uh, that uh, was accused of basically targeting uh, straight white older men with uh, layoffs or uh, redundancy, as it's called in the UK, and um, and then that case just went in some in some directions uh, and has sparked some. Uh, Subsequent conversations that uh, that go in a lot of different places. We'll be talking about that and just kind of what we see as some of the bigger implications for the industry. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the Olympics and how it's going on in terms of streaming, viewership, uh, ad sales, ratings. Uh, we're going to have our TV, uh, Convergent TV editor, uh, Jason Lynch, in to talk. It's always great. Jason is literally the smartest person I've ever met when it comes to TV stuff. Uh, so we'll be great to hear from him on that. But let's... Uh, Let's start with JWT. So, Stephen, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my uh, uh, Stephen's been covering this. Stephen broke this story. Uh, it was uh, an Adweek exclusive, uh, but uh, has been since been picked up around the world, especially in the UK. 
as we will talk about with uh, with mixed results on the, on the quality of that coverage, uh, but very proud of Adweek's coverage and what uh, how Stephen has framed the story from the beginning uh, and uh, the context he's provided. So, Stephen, if it's okay with you, I will just kind of give my uh, idiot's 30-second depiction of the story, and then you can be the uh, source of insight who fills in those gaps. Sound good? Uh, yeah, good luck. There's a lot in this. <laughs> There really is. And first off, I will say um, the uh, two, I guess, quasi caveats. One is, is if you have not read up on this story, you should. Uh, uh, there's a great story on adweek.com that Stephen wrote called How J- JWT Was Hit With and Lost a Lawsuit About Discriminating Against Men. Uh, the so you can read up on that. That is not only has all the major details; it has the entire uh, tribunal report, uh, which is basically the the decision that came down. The whole thing is in there, literally embedded in there, so you can read it for yourself uh, if you want to find out any other details. I mean, it's what is it like eighty pages, Stephen? It goes on a long ways. It's detailed. Uh, yeah, highly detailed. But this this is. Uh... Uh, legal documentation, so we we know what we can uh, what we're reading here is pretty close to the truth. And what's fascinating about it is we're getting to see the goings on behind an agency that, I mean, we know what happened to it. Ultimately, it was folded into a larger part of WPP, but now we can see a lot of the reasons why as well. Yeah, and so it, it really is a mix of both the financial woes that uh, J. Walter Thompson was going through, especially in the UK uh, back then. Was it 2018 are we talking about? Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. and then also, yeah, just the, the inside... Uh, there were some public conversations around JWT, its gender gap, its lack of diversity at the time, um, and but now we know what those conversations were like on the inside as well and how that ended up leading to this lawsuit. The other uh, just quick explanation I'll give for Americans is that this is a tribunal, uh, which Stephen, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, from what I understand, it's basically – it's not quite the same as an American court, but in the end, they they were able to call witnesses, almost like the way we would think of a congressional hearing here. They were able to call these witnesses in, interview them about exactly what happened, and then determine for themselves as a body – this is what happened, and this is not worth. So, so in the end, they said uh, they were not not spoiler alert here, but in the end, uh, you know, they they said these guys accused JWT of discriminating against them based on uh, their sexual orientation, their age, all these other things. They they threw out all that, and in the end, they said we do believe the agency discriminated against them based on their sex as males, uh, and then uh, that their firing was unfair, uh, and then it threw out the others. But this is a body that basically listened to all that testimony called those witnesses and then determined its findings, which, which to be clear, is now being uh, – will very likely be appealed by Wonderman Thompson, uh, the agency that survives JWT. Um, but yeah, so because of that, we end up with this exhaustive document that basically details everybody that was involved with this case just about, right? Yeah. Uh, J- uh, well, uh, Wonderman Thompson have uh, definitely said they're going to appeal, so this continues to be a live case which means we have to be slightly careful not to offer any opinions uh, on the actual case itself and only state the facts. So I will be very hesitant in in how I explain what happened. But to outline, I mean, this started in 2018 when JWT was, and this word comes up quite a lot in the documentation, seen as being a traditional agency, which to most of us probably means that it mainly liked doing TV ads. So... They that was at the time when things were starting. More, more and more clients were looking to 
digitalised their communications and JWT was struggling to bring in new accounts of significance and therefore it was having to make, um, it seemed like, especially in 2018, uh, a number of redundancies in order to to um, in order to shore things up, which when you're not winning work and you're having to lose people, just must feel so difficult. Must it must be so hard to work in that culture. So amid all of this, uh, the creative team, two two creatives, uh, Chaz Bayfield and Dave Jenner, they they were creative directors. Uh, they'd just been promoted the year before to a role a more man uh, a management role for the creative team, and they started to feel a bit paranoid about what was going on in terms of agency and how worried it was over its gender pay gap, which was was very poor. It was at the top of the, the league table for agencies in terms of just how poor it was. And that really did freak out the agency. We, we can see that within the documentation. And so their response was uh, to go to an... Uh, a conference in London uh, run by an organisation called Creative Equals where uh, two of the creative teams stood up and spoke about how they, and this word has come back to haunt and continually wanted to obliterate the reputation of being an agency that was basically just hiring white straight men and promoting them. And I mean, my understanding is that is very much what JWT's reputation was for for decades, so this is something they 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 went on stage and said we want to change this. Now that had nothing by the looks of it, and uh, all involved uh, claimed they were when they made this statement they were unaware that there was going to be uh, another round of redundancy or consultation on this front. But having said this, uh, the the creative team, five men within the creative team took issue with what they had heard and they raised a complaint, uh, which the agency says it tried to explain the wording and um, try to allay their fears over uh, their own future. But ultimately they did face a consultation and uh, they were made redundant. So as a result, two of those, the creative directors, sued the agency and have won the case, which seems to have Surprised the industry has really caught it off guard. But what we've seen internally is what a, a lot of mistakes from the agency side. Uh, when they were asked for notes from meetings to prove that the, the consultation took place uh, and nobody was aware on stage, they, they, they just didn't have notes. They, they can't give any evidence to when meetings took place and when people were told what, which is incredible. You would think basic thing to do but the claim they made was that these notes might have been lost during the merger with Wonderman which happened pretty much to save JWT uh, but it just seems incredible that they would have been they would have known this lawsuit was coming up but still cannot prove when things were said when things were decided who who decided what so that that has been I think that's amazing to me that that's that's uh, come out um, but then there's so much else to it as well. There's just it just yeah. never stops. Yeah, and 
I, I should I should uh, at this point interject too that after our coverage about two weeks after we broke this story, the Daily Mail uh, covered this, uh, which cover it. I use the word cover loosely. Um, really, just did a, an absolute. Um, a hit piece on on a woman uh, who was unrelated to this to this lawsuit, um, and you know they they really basically turned this story from being what what the reason we're discussing it today is because I think there's some really fascinating conversations that should come out of this lawsuit in the terms of of to to Stephen's point about documentation about how this is an agency that identified a gender pay gap. Attempted to discuss it both publicly and to and to address it internally, and in the process, through a lack of documentation, through some what sounds like going through this lawsuit, they really kind of went back and forth with their with these uh, kind of more senior male employees of saying like, no, 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 you're you're going to be fine, you're fine, and then saying, well, actually, you're laid off, and actually, we're only laying off the white men, and then and then uh, there is one moment uh, in this lawsuit which feels particularly damning where there was a woman who was also going to be laid off alongside these men and uh, a leader, one of the, I believe a creative leader, removed her from the uh, the list of those being uh, made redundant. And when the tribunal asked, you know, why her uh, and, and why, why, you know, why didn't she get cut with the, with the rest of these? They had no, they had no, uh, you know, Nothing, nothing to offer. No paperwork. No, no justification. Uh, I will say, as someone who's been through management training, you get told a lot: uh, document everything. You know, document who who you hire and fire and why, and don't ever end up. If you want to end up in a law, it, like really losing in court, uh, you go in with absolutely no documentation about why you made a decision. So, th- so there's that aspect. Unfortunately, to me, uh, for, uh, I mean, the Daily Mail story is unfortunate in countless ways. Um, but uh, the real thing that that uh, that infuriates me about it beyond its ad hominem attacks on uh, someone who should not have been dragged into it, uh, it it just dropped a big turd in the pool is the the metaphor I keep using, which is gross, but is accurate of like n- no one can talk about this case now without talking about that Daily Mail story, which sucks. You know, the article sucks, but also it sucks that we can't have a bigger conversation as an industry about this. Shannon, I, I apologize that, that Stephen and I have been just like ranting back and forth about this case, but I'm curious when you first saw this, uh, you know, a kind of <laughs> what what was your what was your first response, and then what response have you seen in the industry as as this story has kind of percolated and and grown these weird new new heads of how it's been discussed uh, online? Well, my first initial thought was, well, this does nobody any favors. <laughs> um, when you talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think that there is a misconception about what that means. It's not about the presence per se. It's not about having a head count. It's about how, one, how you get these underrepresented communities in the door and also how they are given the tools to succeed. By, from this standpoint, for if you have someone that is not meeting up to standards, isn't doing the job, um, and, you know, isn't able to perform. I'm, and this is just a general um, statement. I, in terms of details of this ongoing case, of course, we don't have that. We, will, we won't know the full details of why this woman got to, to stay 
Um, but it's not about keeping marginalized talent um, within the walls, despite everything, whether they can do the job or not. Um, it, it's just about making sure, like I said, they have the tools to succeed and that they are able to effectively use those tools. So keeping uh, anyone around for the sake of checking off a box does not do anybody any favors. And it only bolsters these sort of derailing talks about meritocracy that we run into every time we talk about inequality in any industry. Um, in terms of the industry response, I, on my end, I have not seen a robust industry response yet. And I don't know why that unsettles me, but it does. Just because I feel like this sets a very dangerous precedent for all the work that uh, people in the DEI space have been doing um, to let something like this devolve in the way that it has, I think is going to fuel a lot of derailing, a lot of conversations that have previously derailed um, progress. And I don't know, the quiet, kind of um, unsettles me, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been no shortage of response to, again, to the Daily Mail article, mm -hmm. um, which understandably and rightly infuriated many people. And, and that's where it's like, I, f I feel this weird obligation on our end to say like, okay, let's, let's set aside this giant pile of garbage uh, that is this, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And not let that, <sighs> like, you can't not acknowledge mm -hmm. it. Um, but at the same time, I don't want that to define the way that, that this that this case is talked about, because I really I say this as someone who covered courts for years. I w I've never said, please read the legal documents or please read the details of this case, because normally cases are pretty you know self-evident. This is one where like every agency executive should read this this lawsuit. Right. It's it's so like there's so many unforced errors. There's so many like the thing that really bothers me and bothers anybody who advocates for for inclusion is, you know, you've got this this powerful speech that Creative Equals has Stephen talked about um, for about this gender gender pay gap and how JWT was trying to address its reputation. Then you had uh, this group of of kind of more older white men uh, in the agency who felt threatened by, as Stephen mentioned, the, the word obliterate uh, specifically. Uh, they were saying they wanted to obliterate the reputation, but there's there's a part in the lawsuit where they say, we just heard that in this presentation, they said they want to obliterate all of us white men. And, and the agency basically said in response, HR, you know, it's just like, no, 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 that's not what this is about, which is true. That is not what that was about. But then they like, it really becomes clear reading through the lawsuit that the agency like kind of did everything they could to make these guys feel like, no, you're fine. You're fine. That's not what this is about. And then to like come back later and be like, also you're fired. You know, it's like the, the timeline you can, you can get a feel for, I think it would be easy to hear headlines like these and to hear about a case like this and say, oh, this awful tribunal uh, that, that made this decision blatantly favoring white men. Um, it's, it, it would be understandable and easy to kind of look at it that way. I think when you read through the details, it's like the tribunal keeps saying like, well, do you have any, do you, do you got any evidence? You got any, like anything in writing that shows that that wasn't what happened, that you didn't fire them because of this? And like I said, in the end, they said it was uh, 
that they found that the agency did discriminate based on uh, sex uh, and throughout the race and sexual orientation and other things. Um, and see, that's the, I'm sorry, but that's like the chilling part for as someone who, um, you know, comes from numerous marginalized communities. When you look at the lack of documentation, <laughs> um, I, documentation isn't just meant to protect the entities or um, the companies. They also protect the workers. If you ask a lot of marginalized um, professionals, especially from the perspective of a Black woman, documentation on our end is key. It, it's so key. It, it arms us um, whenever we deal with certain situations that may appear discriminatory, that may seem like they, you know, don't necessarily favor us, we turn to our own documentation to back up every decision that we make because that tend that is so key when it comes to just you know protecting ourselves in these situations. The best thing that any company, any agency can do for their employees is to document everything, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's about their retention, whether it's about their redundancy. You, you have to document things and make sure that there is just sort of a line, a paper trail of reasoning that leads to why they are receiving the treatment that they're receiving. By not documenting anything, you are putting your employees in great, great danger. I cannot stress that enough. Um, just that lack of, lack of like record is what really like, <laughs> like chilled down my spine because that's what we use in any way to, to arm ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if nothing else, if you listen to this uh, podcast and you get nothing else away from it, document it, whether you are an employee, whether you are a manager, uh, yeah, just, just document things. Um, I mean, again, this was drilled into me at a very uh, early age mm -hmm. as, as someone who, you know, got into management in my probably mid twenties. And this was like literally my entire management training. It was not about how to be like necessarily a good manager. It was about how to stay out of court or how, <laughs> if you end up in court to have documentation. Yep. And as someone who has since like been pulled into courtrooms time to time, and it's just like, sure. I'm glad stuff's in writing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. There, there, there's also just, again, I would really encourage folks to, if you've, if you've been following this case or if you've only been following the, the understandable outrage around uh, the coverage of it uh, in the Daily Mail, like I, I would just really encourage you to kind of read through the details and to really digest uh, the, to, to me. And again, to Stephen's point, we're not here to offer legal advice, although obviously we keep saying documentary thing. I don't think anyone's going to disagree <laughs> with that. Uh, but I will say this, that that Shannon, and I, I'm fascinated to, to hear what you think of this, but to me, when you talk about uh, making a more inclusive workplace uh, and really embracing DEI in, in serious ways, to me, it's about your hiring and recruiting and your leadership development. It's not about who you fire, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the, the, the scary thing about this one is that it does give fodder to this subset of people who believe that diversity is about removing uh, you know, white men uh, from the equation, right. which is is ridiculous. But cases like this, where they don't have any documentation to prove otherwise, so they end up being found uh, essentially guilty of it. That's what's that to me was the heartbreaking thing about this is I'm just like, you know, 
it, you're just you're just going to convey this idea that diversity is about who you get rid of, not who you bring right. in. And I just I feel like if nothing else, hopefully agencies will just start really factoring in ver- instead of just being terrified and being chilled by this verdict. Instead, just think about like, well, let's make it a big part of how we recruit and not necessarily how we terminate. Right. And that's what I mean by saying that it sets a dangerous precedent. You haven't just created this awful situation for the people who have been left, who have been fired. You've created this sort of volatile environment for the people who have remained behind, especially if they are um, members of marginalized communities. And, you know, we've we've seen it time and time again with through entertainment um, through medicine, when you talk about, you know, this meritocracy system, when you, when you say that, hey, there is a deep, deep system of inequality that runs through these industries, and you always have um, very, typically, the dude bros that come and go, no, it's meritocracy, it's about who deserves it. And when you try to say, like, hey, that's not the case, like, it's about you know getting really great talent through the door that may not have that access. This doesn't really do anything to help our argument. If anything, it helps those who scream meritocracy, meritocracy. Um, you know, you got here because of who you are, not what you can do. All this does is fuel that, and you only need one example to really bolster that side of things. And this was this such an expensive, costly, costly example. I do wonder as well, we talk about precedent, but I do wonder who's going to learn from this story that if they feel they've been let go, I mean, women have talked for decades about how unfair a profession can be, and many will have lost their jobs through unfair decision-making within businesses. I wonder who's going to learn from having read this story and use it as a precedent, and maybe it might actually save people in, in their livelihoods as well. Yeah, I, I, I will be curious to see, you know, the, unfortunately, like, I, I think they're, again, I think they're the takeaways from this that people, that employers should take, that any individual should take, which in this case, it was like a battle of documentation, right? And and the plaintiffs won because they kept all those emails <laughs> and, they, and the burden was really left on the employer to prove that the discrimination was not the reason that they got rid of these folks. Um, but, you know, it's unfortunately we live in this in this era where to Shannon's point about all it takes is one, right? All it takes is one case to become, even if it's not necessarily the kind of legal precedent, like people are going to remember this as a case about discriminating against straight, white, older men. Um, even though all of that was thrown out except sex, right? Like, even though in the end, the actual verdict was they unfairly fired these people because they were men, because the agency could not, according to the tribunal, prove that that, that wasn't the reason they had really no evidence. Um, and instead, it's going to be remembered as this sort of like referendum case study in the, you know, the resilience of <laughs> whatever of straight white men. It's like, it's so... <sighs> It's so frustrating, and that's why it's just everything about this. It's it's like it's one of those cases where, and these come up, you know, where it's like you 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 don't side with anybody, and there is no good guy in the sense here of just you're just like, well, that both sides being 
being pretty, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's, I, I, I will just say, uh, read the details again as, as this is not me trying to drive people to adweek.com. This is just me trying to get people, uh, to really spend a little time with the story itself and the details of it. Even, even if, you know, you're still publicly discussing the more, um, visceral parts of this case that's that's fine like i i think a lot of the again the, the outrage around the coverage of it has been completely justified and really important um and, and heartbreaking in a, in a way too uh but I, I think the main reason we brought it up on the show is just to really encourage people to spend some time reading through the details because they're out there you can read them they're not like they're not buried in an archive um and there's and and it's it's the uk it's not every country but you can bet that yeah. every ad agency that every everybody's looking at this one. It's never long. It's so. never long after the UK something does something that it becomes relevant in the US. So it's definitely read over um the case. If anything, just um, as you mentioned, a case study of what not to do. And just bear in mind that every bit of effective work that you do with your agency protects all of your employees, including your marginalized ones. Um, getting rid um Seemingly, I mean, of course, again, <laughs> pending case, so we're not making any judgments here, but um, ostensibly <laughs> getting rid of your white men doesn't necessarily do us any favors. Um, just, again, create a responsible culture, and that includes hefty, hefty documentation, which we, we should all be doing. Yeah. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you for your coverage. It's been really spectacular. It's been, as we've seen, uh, the extremes of how poorly this case can be covered. It's made me especially appreciative of having Stephen and the responsible coverage he's brought to this. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining the conversation today. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, we'll be with uh, Jason Lynch, our TV editor, uh, to talk about the Olympics and how that's going this year in terms of uh, audience, uh, ad sales and streaming. So we will be right back. Stick with us. All right, we're back, uh, and we've got Jason Lynch, uh, who uh, covers the TV industry here at Adweek. has been covering it for a very long time and has seen many Olympics, Olympuses. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Jason, always a pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, thanks for joining us to talk about the Olympics. Yeah, it's great to be back. All right, well, let's talk uh, big picture uh, I feel like the themes. I've, well, I should be I should be transparent here that my Olympics viewing this year has uh, been limited to highlights. I now watch the Olympics. I realize the way I watch Saturday Night Live, which is that I just wait and see what everyone's talking about the next day, and then I watch like a thirty second highlight of it. Um, what What have you seen this year in terms of any kind of confusion in the marketplace about where to watch it or where to find it, and just kind of how those options went it went over this year? It feels like this was the first the first uh, Olympics in this kind of era since the, the true streaming explosion. Uh, for sure. So th this, this is the first um, Olympics that Peacock, which is NBC universal streaming services is, is a part of it. And, and it's also kind of the most expansive Olympics they've ever had in the sense that I feel like every Olympics, certainly that I've written about, there's been these complaints of like, why, you know, why are all the, the best sports like on a tape delay? Like I already find out what happened before, you know, they, they air, like, why can't we watch these things live? Well, this year you can watch everything live. Um, the issue and the issue I think that a lot of consumers are having is figuring out where to access that live program. Programming. So we all know NBC, you know, you go to MT, NBC for primetime highlights, 
but finding these events and finding out you know where they're actually airing in real time have been has been the bigger issue. And I think what's happening is everybody has heard this marketing mantra about you know Peacock, Peacock, Peacock this year. So you're going to Peacock, but you can't find all the events on Peacock. You can only find the Peacock events on Peacock. And I think this this what some people are struggling with and complaining about is this uh, trying to piece together the Olympic experience on their own. Now, if you go to something like the NBC Sports app. And if you're a cable subscriber and kind of authenticate that way, that does a pretty good job of pointing you in the right direction. But a lot of people aren't doing that. You're going to Peacock or you're going to NBC, and then you maybe you're just throwing in the towel because you're just, you know, it's just too tough to, to find out, um, you know, where your favorite sport is airing, especially if you're trying to watch a live like gymnastics event at like six in the morning. Well, the classic metric, obviously, of Olympics viewership is the primetime ratings. Uh, I think if if you're uh, following this closely enough to be listening to this part of the podcast, you probably know they're not looking great, right? They're not. Um, you know, as of right now, and we're recording this on a Thursday, um, the most up-to-date numbers we have right now is that the Olympics in prime time are averaging 17.5 million primetime viewers. And that's across this total audience delivery metric that NBCU uses that also includes streaming, other platforms, you know, linear, cable, streaming, digital. So it's everything within prime time. That, you know, compared to most, most TV viewing these days, especially, is huge. However, the Rio games averaged 27.5 million, which was 10 million more uh, in prime time, again, on the same total audience delivery dynamic. So that's a 36% decline in ratings. So that is, you know, you're losing more than a third of your, of your prime time audience, which is, uh, that's pretty massive. Is that about, I mean, waning interest? Is it about geography and, and the, the delay? Is it about uh, just uh, changing behaviors? What are you seeing? It's a little bit of all. So we knew going into this that the ratings were going to be down in part because, as I mentioned before, you can watch these events live. So if I'm watching, uh, you know, track and field live, and I know that actually doesn't happen until next week. I'm probably not going to go back into prime time and watch the highlights or maybe you know, to what you were saying earlier, you hear everybody buzzing about something. Maybe I found the clip of that of that race um, online. So I don't need to go to prime time now to see it. So so you are I think a, a portion of that decline is because people are watching it elsewhere and other platforms Maybe they're watching it live. And NBC, you expected that going in. But as sources told me uh, in, in my reporting and then also the CEO of NBC Universal confirmed publicly in his uh, investors call this morning, uh, the primetime ratings are lower than they thought they were going to be. I mean, I think they expect to take a hit. Did they expect to take to lose a third of their of their primetime audience? No, they didn't. So how are ad sales looking, the guarantees that they make to these advertisers promising them a, a certain amount of viewership? How's that how's that going? Yeah, so so it's you know, listen, it it is it is not, I think even privately, they will say, listen, these the ratings are not what we hoped they would be, but it's not the 33 to 33%. Uh, or thirty six percent, or you know, just say roughly a third loss in ratings is not, is not, it does not equal kind of a third that they're, they're missing their ratings guarantees by a third. Um, you know, what I've been told is that first off, these total audience delivery guarantees, it's like across the entire platform all different day parts. So nobody, you're not allowed to just buy inventory in prime time. You're buying it across kind of a, a mix of, of different, of different, uh, of different outlets of different day parts. So, so that figure reflects that. And I'm told that right now, the disparity between what the guarantee was and what the ratings are is more in like the 15 to 20% range 
which is still big. It's not as big as 33%. And also I'm told this is kind of more in line with like the disparity in major sports events. I think, you know, a lot of companies would, would prefer to, to, um, you know, have to deal with make goods later on. Then it turns out that, you know, you kind of undercharge advertisers. So, um, so that is what NBC Universal is, is preparing to do already. These conversations have been underway. I think by the time this airs, some advertisers were already, were already beginning make goods. So what happens is kind of the second half of the Olympics, NBCU has reserved a percentage of the inventory that they hadn't, their inventory that they hadn't sold yet. And the idea was if there was under delivery, they would then give those, um, that inventory to their advertisers as, as a make good for the audience on, under, under delivery, because these ratings, even though they're lower, they're so much bigger than anything else on TV that you can't really like give somebody a make good and like, you know, just a random primetime show that's going to air a week after the Olympics. It's going to be, you know, a tenth of, of what this audience is. So uh, as of right now, uh, as we're, we're talking, NBCU, it feels fairly confident that they are going to be able to, to bridge that gap with the existing uh, inventory that they have for, for make goods within the Olympics themselves. So, I mean, I know it's very difficult to look ahead, much less like four years, but you know, are, have we reached a point where the technology of of viewership of of the way we watch TV is just changing so dramatically that it, it is now apples and oranges to try to compare any one Olympics to another? A four a four year cycle for the Summer Games. I mean, that's a that that's an infinity of streaming time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and and, and the I think that certainly the the industry has just changed. So seismically since those Rio games, which were five years ago, I mean, think of all the streaming services that didn't exist and, and just the way that we all watch TV. So I think, you know, certainly we're never going to go back to that. I think what's happening right now, um, and I, or, which are issues I hope are kind of fixed down the line, is you really do need, there is still, I think, a desire for the games. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of other issues at play this year with the COVID of it all. I think there are some people who just don't feel comfortable watching the games, don't think the games should be taking place, um, and perhaps in a quote-unquote normal year would have been making more of an effort to watch. I do think uh, the company, all of these kind of media companies, but especially NBC Universal, since they have the games through 2032, need to come up with more of like a like one-stop shopping for this. So again, the, the NBC Sports app has that a little bit. People don't really think to go there right away, but people who want to watch the Olympics need to go to one place. And for some people, they thought that was Peacock to say, okay, I want to watch it. What are all my options in this same, you know, this, this one home screen or homepage or whatever, and then just point me in the right direction, as opposed to like, like what I think some people feel like this is a wild goose chase. So I think the big issues that have the, the big work NBC Universal has to do is to just kind of smooth out the process, you know, make it make it more frictionless and uh, and just make it easier to for people to watch the content they want to watch. Well, it's like in some ways it feels like it's going to be uh you know, so long before the Olympics are back around, you and I have both also been covering this industry for so long now that it also feels like we're going to blink and we'll be having the same conversation again. Well, but actually this year we are going to blink and blink <laughs> having the same conversation because the Winter Olympics happen in just six months from now. I know. It's um, so it's, I mean, they're already, NBCU is already very heavily into preparations for those Olympics. Uh, I actually, I will be interested. I was just talking to my uh, colleague, Kelsey Sutton, our streaming editor, and I said, I, I'll be interested to see just what, what changes there 
they're going to make on the streaming front just in those six months to, to again, try, I think, to improve the experience um, for those people who were going to Peacock and just thought that they'd be able to watch anything they wanted and they can only watch a handful of events. So I think that's really what um, what what they need to focus on for uh, for future games um, or, or otherwise I think we're going to just have these same issues of people kind of trying to find their game, uh, what, the, what they want to watch, and then maybe just kind of you know deciding it's not worth the effort and they'll just wait for the highlights later. Right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for uh, for joining the conversation and uh, I would encourage everyone to check out uh, Jason's coverage, our colleague Kelsey Sutton's coverage. As you mentioned, there's a, a lot on adweek.com if you want to learn more about the ratings and quite a bit will probably have happened between and just in the few days uh, between <laughs> between now and, and when this podcast comes out. So stay tuned to adweek.com for that. Thanks so much, Jason. Always a pleasure. All right. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGibbony. If you have not already, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, you can reach the same time at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. Thanks. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.